Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify and when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast on Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. I was born with a very rare genetic condition. Mm -hmm. It's called osteogenesis imperfecta. It's a very rare genetic condition um, and it's characterized by bones that break without any trauma. By the age of 14, I had broken legs six times. When I started to present with injuries uh, and broken bones, my mum was questioned. She's like, are you abusing your child? Because at the time I didn't have a diagnosis. I didn't realise the privilege of having a diagnosis and what that means. My mum was told that I was born with this condition because she ate the wrong things, because she worked too hard throughout the pregnancy. In addition to the comments about you know, blaming my mum, it would always start with, but not only have you had another daughter, but on top of that, she's disabled. No one encouraged me to work. I was actively encouraged to live a life on benefits. Even though I can, I could, I can work, I could work and I wanted to work. I wanted to contribute to society. It's hard being judged on your ability when you can't change that. Knowing that I will never get certain opportunities or people won't ever consider me for things just because they have a bias towards some of my characteristics that make me who I am, that I did had no control over choosing. Oh my God, I'm not a crier at all. Shani, welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. And I connected with you a long time ago, actually. Mm. And I think a lot of people, when they see my guests, they think, you know, if we've spoken last week and then you've come on. But you were someone that I feel so inspired by and I just love everything you're doing. And I've been wanting to speak to you for so long. So I'm very, very, very grateful that you're here today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. And you spent a long time getting here as well. So I'm very <laughs> grateful that you took the time out for me today. So for people who don't know you, I want to go into the I want to start with, you know, exactly what you do, mm. because you've been named the UK's highest profile and most influential disability activist. You've been in the BBC 100 women's list in 2022. And in CEO magazine, you are the world's leading change maker that we should all keep an eye on in 2022, <laughs> which are all incredible titles. And you actually have more. I just couldn't fit them on this piece of paper. So I want to start with your story mm. and exactly where this all began. Sure, and I think sometimes when people hear all of that, I think it's really easy to assume that someone perhaps like me has had a really easy ride or a really, yeah. really easy life. Mm -hmm. But actually, 
everything I'm doing and everything that you've just read out there has been born out of constantly being discriminated against, mm. constantly facing oppression and actually wanting to do something about it and change that. And and what I've come to realise, it's been a way for me to channel my frustration and my anger. I love that. I think that's so powerful. And it's kind of the same for the podcast, if yeah. I'm honest. A lot of the things that people are like, I resonate with you so much mm. on that. A lot of the things I'm talking about have been hard things that have happened yeah. to me. Yeah. I've had to reflect yeah. and I'm essentially channeling my anger yeah. to share it on a platform in which it's not so direct at yeah. someone individually, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think that resonates so much and I love that you're trying to change this and yeah. I think it really needs to happen. Yeah. So I wanna start off with your childhood. Yeah. Um, talk to me about it. So I was born in Birmingham, I'm mm -hmm. very proud for me. Uh, in a big South Asian family, I'm Sikh, Punjabi. And I always talk about that because that's a big part of who I am. It's defined me as a person, as well as my values and morals. Um, uh, I was born with a very rare genetic condition. Mm -hmm. It's called osteogenesis imperfecta. Okay. And I can spell it. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely can't, don't ask me. <laughs> um, but essentially, it's, it's a very rare genetic condition. Um, and it's characterized by bones that break without any trauma. So I, by the age of 14, I had broken legs six times. And I know you're gasping and people often do, but people with my condition actually break between three to 400 times in their life. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so although it's a very difficult and unpredictable, unpredictable condition to live with mm -hmm. I also feel this huge sense of gratitude I've mm. only had six breaks this you know to this date uh, it's also the reason why I have a short stature okay um and although it's a genetic condition it doesn't run in my family so I'm what's wow. called a spontaneous <laughs> mutation <laughs> which is fun to be okay um but Disability faces a, a really huge further sense of stigma mm. in South Asian communities. So I've had to, yeah, navigate lots of different challenging scenarios, situations, circumstances, you know, starting from my own family home to the wider community. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I actually went to a special needs primary school. Right. Because back in the early 90s that's what inclusion was in education mm. and don't get me wrong it, it perhaps was the right decision in terms of the physical care that I needed but it wasn't until I went to a mainstream secondary school did I realize actually it's not it yeah. wasn't the right place for my learning needs I felt like I didn't know the basics and you know when when you're as brittle as you know you can cough and break a rib my life was, uh, I was wrapped up in cotton wool and, and I, I don't blame anyone for wanting to do that. I'd probably do the same if, you know, my mm. child had brittle bones. Mm. Um, so I had a lot of time off because I was breaking and then I had to recover. Then I'd have to learn how to walk again. And then the following summer, I'd do it all again. I'd break wow. and, you know, it was nothing ever traumatic, you know, as a reason why I would break. Once someone, you know, my auntie just lifted me up under the arms and my leg just broke. It's it's like was it being painful? that massively painful, yeah. Um, 
But me and my mum had got into this routine that I wouldn't even need to have an x-ray to know it was broken. Oh my gosh, you just know. She'd, I'd fall over, she'd say, is it broken? And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> like screaming Became there and there. But you know what, my mum is the reason I am who I am today. You know, she never once called an ambulance. She said, somebody else needs it more than you. So even though I was there with a broken leg, crying in pain, she'd pick me up, put me in the car and drive me to hospital. That is amazing. And at the time I was like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> mom, why don't you love me? Yeah, yeah. I'd do the same, yeah. But she's, she's just been an eternal source of inspiration and strength to me. Uh, not just because of that, but because mm-hmm. of many of the things, but, but also my mom never treated me any differently from my You're siblings. making me cry because you're oh. getting emotional. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, she never treated me any differently. And again, that's one of the biggest things I want to like say thanks to my mom for because if she had mm-hmm. treated me differently, she wouldn't have been setting me up to live in this very inaccessible and ableist world. Yeah. I remember like being in plaster recovering after a broken leg. She'd just, you know, give me the pile of laundry to fold. She's like, you're not getting away with it. Yeah. And at the time, I was like, oh, my God, yeah. something mean to me. But I'm so grateful, like, for the things that she's taught me. Yeah. And also, when I was younger, the word, I couldn't say to her, I can't do this. She's like, there's no such word as can't. Can't is banned in this house. <laughs> um, she's like, you can and you will. And you'll just always find another way of doing it. Wow. So... At the time, don't get me wrong, I did think she was a very strict mother. Yeah. A very strict authoritarian parent. Yeah. Especially in comparison to my dad, who wasn't authoritarian at all. But now I can only thank her for everything and, yeah. and for the way in which she decided to to raise me. And it was hard for her. There was nobody else in my community that was in a similar situation. It's um so touching what you've just said and you made me really emotional because I can see how much you really love your mom. And what's interesting, I think when we get older, we then start to see our parents' perspectives, don't we? And when you have one parent who's soft and another parent who's strong, Mm. you always categorize them as good and bad. And it's the same with me. My dad is really strong, really strict, always be the hardest on me. And my mom is really soft and always, whatever I said, she'd be like, you're doing amazing. (laughs) You're you're, you're incredible, like you can do it. And growing up, and I'm still, in that phase a little bit of like to my dad, like, why don't you get it? <laughs> yeah. Like, why don't you understand it? Yeah. You know, my mum, when I quit my job was very easily like, okay, sure. And my dad was very much like, you know, talking me through the logistics. Mm-hmm. Well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And as we had that conversation, my natural thought was, you know, you know, he's so strict and I, and I knew he'd never do that. Mm-hmm. I knew he'd never support me or, you know, always go to that defense mechanism mm-hmm. because my whole life he'd always be the one that would be really strict on my grades, really strict on me yeah. going to a good uni, really strict on me working hard. And my mum was always like, you know, it's okay. And actually this time, I really appreciate my dad giving me all of those things because mm-hmm. I realized he's just looking out for me. Yeah. And as you get older, you realize that it's great to have two parents like that. Yeah. One that supports yeah. you in everything you do, so they're like your number one believer, mm-hmm. and the other who's protecting you, mm-hmm. and the other one who's not gonna let you fail, and the other one who, when you run an idea past them, you yeah. better have every answer <laughs> in the world, because yeah. they're gonna throw it at you. Yeah. And I only think with age, that comes where you Absolutely. start to understand the strength of having both of those parents. And quite often, I often talk about my mom, especially when I talk about my childhood, because she was, you know, my main caregiver, as many mothers Mm. are. 
However, I also learned so much from my dad too and still do. Yeah. So my dad is a big Sikh activist and in, in our childhood, it was very normal for us to go on a weekend to protest. Mm. So he taught me Amazing. that you should use your voice for others when you can. And I always think, you know, the work that I'm doing now, would I ever have done it if I wasn't, if, if my dad didn't teach me those things or if I didn't see him do that, if I didn't see him use his time, his money. Also, you know, putting other people before his family, which is hard for me to say as a daughter. Of course. And, you know, I hear it from my mum's side as well. She's mm. like, sometimes I've just felt like a single parent. But he's so strong in his belief and wants to advocate on behalf of others. And I've taken so much from him too. So props to dad as well. As I've gotten older, I've often, you know, asked my mum what it was like for her mm. when she found out, you know, I, I had this condition and what it was like for her because my mum had a very different experience from my dad. Right. And as I said, you know, it's nobody's fault or there was no indication that I was going to be born with this condition. And I even said, I was like, you know, if it was picked up in a scan, what would you have done? Yeah. She's like, no, you know, I would have carried on with the yeah. pregnancy. And, you know, each to their own. I'm not trying to hear to vilify anyone that wants to choose not to. Everybody's circumstances are different. Mm -hmm. And I have a younger brother. <laughs> so I said to my mum, I said, I was born with this condition, but then you had another child. Yeah. I was like, why would you do that? She's like, well, if if your brother had that condition, then however I've looked after you, I would have looked after him as well. Your mom is just, <laughs> honestly, we should have brought her on the I podcast. Know. Oh, I'd love to. I was like, mom, are you sure you just didn't want a boy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she's like, no, that, that, it, that I wasn't bothered about that. So what age were you diagnosed? So um, I didn't get a diagnosis until I was two years old. Mm -hmm. So when I was born, the doctors could tell something wasn't quite right. right. And I sort of said to my parents, something's not right, but, you know, we'll be in touch, take her home. Okay. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for my parents, you know. That's that, really difficult. Yeah. Not knowing. Not knowing and, and also not knowing how to care for me in the best way. I've got brittle bones. Could you imagine if... I could have probably gone home with broken bones because if you think of how traumatic birth is, mm. many children mm. are born with broken bones when brittle bones is detected in the womb. Why? I don't, that could have been me. And then when I started to present with injuries uh, and broken bones, my mum was questioned. She's like, are you abusing your child? Because at the time I didn't have a diagnosis. Of course, yeah. I never thought about yeah. that. So, and actually, for me as an adult, I didn't realise the privilege of having a diagnosis and what that means. Because even my GP is a bit stumped on my condition. I have to go to very specialist consultants who I get to see perhaps once a year. Right. And then when I presented with my very rare condition and COVID, people are like, well, we really don't know what to do with you now. And quite often when I see medical professionals, I often, ha I often have to educate them. My so, gosh, yeah. that's crazy. So I, I had to go to Great Ormond Street at the age of two. That's when I got my diagnosis. And right. even then my parents didn't really get the answers, you know, that they wanted. That They were just told she's got this condition. We can't really say what she will or won't be able to do. You know, you just have to take it all one day at a time. But I think having having a diagnosis for any condition is a, is a real privilege. I can Google my condition. It's meant I've been able to connect with others that are living with it. Mm -hmm. They Those people have become my second family. 
Yeah. You know, I can talk to them and not have to explain the backstory because they just get, get it. it. Yeah. And I can't tell you how amazing that feeling is. That's so powerful. I never, yeah. you know, I think so many of us don't even understand. No. Right? Yeah. How you just said it's such a privilege. It is. And you can connect with people and you can create that community and you yeah. have people to fall back on mm. who just understand where you're coming from. Recently, I spoke to someone and they lost their parent mm. and they said, Nobody gets it, mm. apart from the people who have lost their specific parent. Mm. She was like, not even if you've lost your mom. Yeah. If you've lost your dad, you won't get it. Yeah. If you've lost your dad and you have, and someone's lost their mom, they don't get it. Mm. And it's like, for people that, for people going through something, having people who are going through the same thing mm. doesn't compare. You know. You know, even though my family and my siblings have lived this as much as me yes, they, they still don't, don't get, get it. it as much yes. as somebody else would get it living with my condition that's so true um and i think i think this just comes back to mindset as well like people often ask me like why are you always so happy why are you always so optimistic it's kind of like i feel like i'm being questioned as to how i have the audacity like why live, not yeah i feel like i'm being question how I have the audacity to live the life that I'm living but it's because I chose to it's because I fought to and it's because I've had the courage to because I wasn't being encouraged to live this life let's take let's take into consideration everything I'm a South Asian woman who experiences disability mm -hmm. there's oppression on top of oppression on top of oppression I've realized that people judge my ability based on my appearance. I'm very much in the public eye now. I get trolled and harassed a lot. There's even a hierarchy to that. People first comment on my disability, then they'll comment on my ethnicity, and then if they ever get round to it, my gender. But if I was a non-disabled white woman, that person would probably only get trolled based on their gender, as we see happen. Mm. So when I explain it like that, people think oh yeah I never thought of it like that but that's my reality it's crazy yeah. you're right I have never thought of yeah. it like that and thank you so much for explaining that but I want to touch on one thing you said in the beginning mm. because there's so much I want to talk sure. about everything you're doing you said your mum and your dad face very different comments mm. around your disability and your mum was blamed yeah and your dad wasn't yeah can you talk to me about that yeah so I think this is very typical of certain um, attitudes in the South Asian community. My mom was told that I was born with this condition because she ate the wrong things, because she worked too hard throughout the pregnancy. And then I just thought, well, why has no one ever said this to my dad? And I think, you know, it probably has to do with something that my mom was the one who was pregnant. Yeah. But h how do we know that? I mm. might have this condition because of something to do with my dad's genes. You we don't, don't know. It's but so interesting you just said, like, yeah. the the oppression on top of oppression yeah. on top of oppression. One of them is being a woman. Yeah. Right? And when I upload videos around things from a female perspective, because I am female, so I'm going to say my perspective, people are like, you're not talking about men. And I'm yeah. like, I'm talking about my own perspective. And then the other comments are, this doesn't even happen anymore. What are you talking about? Oh, there is, this doesn't happen. And I'm like, yeah. you're a man, yeah. who's a white man yeah. who's commenting on my photos. Like, wh where is, sorry, where's the logic in this? Do you know what people write and like troll me with all the time? You've got a victim mentality. Oh I'm like, my mate, God. If, you are, if you knew me, 
I'm the last person to have a victim mentality. And if one day I want to feel sorry for myself, I'm, I will. I'm able to. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know how hard it is to live in a world that isn't designed for you yeah. on top of then facing negative attitudes? But I don't have a victim mentality. Otherwise, I wouldn't be the person I am today. But the worst thing is, is when people don't believe you. Why would I sit here and make this stuff up? Believe you about what? My experiences, they don't believe that you know, disabled people are twice as likely to be unemployed. People don't believe that I had to apply for more than 100 jobs before removing any mention of my condition. And then I got an interview. People say you're lying about it. Because I'm lying. Why would I lie? But I think <laughs> Why would you? Time. Exactly. <laughs> Why? And also, yeah. someone can proof check that very quickly, right? right? So it's not very... Yeah. It's n Anyway, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting, the point you said around how your mum was blamed. Mm. Because I think... The hardest thing from my perspective to ever absorb is when I hear someone talking about a miscarriage, mm. when I hear someone talking about how they've had a disabled child, mm. when I hear someone talking about an experience that is absolutely not their fault yeah. and they are blamed. So I remember speaking to someone around miscarriages and they said that when they had, when they had miscarried, someone had said to them, it's because you were going to the gym too much. Or like you said, you weren't eating the right foods. Yeah. Or you know, you're so stressed you were working all the time. Now, let me just say this one thing. If anyone out there has said this to someone, well, not only is it none of your business and your advice and your logic and your psychoanalysis of why something has happened mm. is irrational and completely irrelevant and has no science behind it. Mm. But it's unbelievably hurtful to tell someone that they have miscarried, whether you think they climb Mount Everest or not, whether they did or not, whether they climbed a mountain, if they've had some miscarriage and they're suffering, do not give your opinion on why they think why you think it's happened. If something has happened where something that is completely, like you said, a genetic disorder mm. or anything to do with the disability or anything, even if you're a doctor, don't give your opinion mm. because it's very difficult to take the blame for something that is completely out of your control. And this is the thing that I don't understand is like, at this time, my parents didn't have a diagnosis. At, uh, in addition to the comments about, you know, blaming my mom, it would always start with, not only have you had another daughter. No. Yeah, so, because I have an older sister. You're joking. So it would be, you know, the gender preference at play within the South Asian community. But on top of, not only have you had another daughter, but on top of that, she's disabled. C like... The, the very average... Who says that? Exactly. Like, how is it helpful? Why would you say that? Even if you think it... Yeah, just keep, keep it just to yourself. Yeah, honestly. And, and this is what makes me really sad when I think about what my parents, especially my mum, had to go through. And as well, going through it alone. Alone. And, I, yeah, I don't understand it. But the, the common feeling for a parent when they find out that their child is born with a condition or an impairment, is a feeling of grief, is a feeling of unknown, is a feeling of hopelessness. Yeah. And then they're met with these comments. So don't do it. You're so right. And automatically, when I haven't had a child, but I think the way I feel about my nieces and nephews, they're like my children. Really? And if someone, something happened to them and I was in, in care of them, let's just say, yeah. you'd blame yourself. Absolutely. So I think automatically you're already blaming yourself yeah. when something has happened. And people say this around a miscarriage, you're yeah. already thinking about yeah. when you've miscarried, like what, what could I have done? Yeah. Like why has this happened? And miscarriage is in one in four women. You yeah, know, it's very, very common. common yeah. 
but it's still the hardest thing I think when you go through it the first mm. time given from other people's experiences obviously I haven't had my own but you know it's I sympathize so much because it's when something has happened in your body like you said comments yeah. weren't said to your dad it's happened in your mom's yeah, body yeah yeah and naturally as a woman I think we definitely blame ourselves for so much a lot of us have grown up with a lot of guilt yeah a lot of us have grown up with a constant feeling of what could we have done differently what could we have said differently mm. and I think it's very normal in that moment to blame yourself but also there's a very patriarchal lens to this because even in our community, when girls are born, mm -hmm. women are still blamed when it's the it's the man's sperm that defines the, the gender or the reproductive organs that that child's gonna have. I mean, I, I can't say I've experienced that though, because in my family, yeah. when we've had girls or when uh, people have had girls or boys, I've never actually heard anybody say that. I've heard it from like yeah. stories, yeah. people tell me, but because I haven't really experienced yeah. it myself, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm just so mortified yeah. and shocked and I actually yeah. can't believe it. I if I heard someone say that, I think I yeah. would absolutely flip. Oh, it's, it's still very much prevalent and really? alive and kicking in South Asian communities. And it's one of the reasons why I set up Asian Woman Festival. Okay. I want to help South Asian women be activists of their own mm. future because not all South Asian women are encouraged to yeah. know how to yes. and, and know how to navigate certain things. I know I certainly didn't. Mm. So I just want to pay that forward and help with this. Some, uh, it's amazing what you've done even with that but with so many other things you know you're on Loose Women you're on Jeremy Vine you're on BBC I see you everywhere <laughs> and I think it's so incredible that you're really representing the South Asian women I mm. love that I think it's so powerful and we need more of it Yeah. but I want to talk about how you kind of got there in the first place yeah. so you mentioned you went to a special needs school yes for primary school right yeah. yeah and then you went to a mainstream school for a secondary school yeah and then for sixth form so I went to college but when I was leaving um, secondary school, you know you have like this 15 minute careers advisor appointment. <laughs> yes. Well, mine was terrible. So I was a, a full-time wheelchair user up until the age of 16. And the appointment went a little bit like this. They just said, oh, your local council likes to employ disabled people. So why don't you just try and, you know, try and get a job there? And I came away from that thinking, nobody's asked me what I want to do. Nobody's asked me what my interests are. They've literally just treated me as a tick box exercise. And I came away from that thinking, okay, that that just me that that just must be that person's perspective. Yes, not everyone surely thinks that. Mm. But boy, did I have the biggest reality shock of my life. So I left um, secondary school, had eleven GCSEs. I'm so proud of that because. I didn't think I'd get any GCSEs or any good grades. I, I struggled so hard with education. Same. I'm not academic at all. And I never, ever thought I'd go to uni. And, and when people ask me what my biggest achievement in his life, it's graduating from uni. Again, I never thought I'd go. I was never encouraged to. So the fact I, uh, I've graduated is, is my biggest personal achievement. I've spoken at events with Michelle Obama. I've spoken on stages with Hillary, Hillary Clinton. I've done some really cool stuff, but graduating <laughs> is my biggest achievement and That's probably amazing. always will be. But as a child living with this condition and breaking constantly, I didn't have time to think about what my adult, adult life would look like. So I had some surgeries, so I have metal rods in my legs. I also had treatments and that's really helped to improve the quality of my life. I love the NHS. I wouldn't, ha I wouldn't be here without it. Um, so this, 
that's one of the reasons why I didn't know what my life would look like. So I didn't know what I wanted to do either. And I was so envious of everybody else who knew what they they wanted wanted, to study, who knew what dubs they wanted to go to. And I just felt like I was just kind of coasting through because no one encouraged me to work. I was actively encouraged to live a life on benefits. Even though I I can work, I could work and I wanted to work. I wanted to contribute to society but people could see how difficult it was for me to get a job. And I don't think people were saying that in a malicious way. Okay. I think it was just me, they were just saying it in a ki- to be kind. Mm. And it was the people closest to me as well, so they knew what I was capable of. But, you know, as I, as I mentioned, so I left, left um, secondary school, went to college, studied early as I became a nursery nurse. Okay. But within that time, I wanted part-time work. So 16 was a very pivotal age for me. I'd stopped breaking. I was finally able to go out on my own. I caught the bus for the first time on my own. These are really big things for someone who lives with a condition where their bones break without any trauma and their life just has to go on pause. So, you know, naturally I wanted to earn money. I wanted to be out there. But it wasn't until I removed any mention of my condition from over 100 applications was I then offered an interview and then I got a job straight away. Um, so tell me about that process. So you you would apply for jobs. What kind yeah. of jobs were you looking for? So I'd, I'd, I'd be very limited in the type of jobs I could apply for. So right. you know, my friends would be applying for waitressing jobs. I knew I couldn't do that. Yeah. They'd be like admin-based, office-based jobs. Okay. Um, so I was already reduced to what I could apply for, which made the process even longer. And I'd, I'd have one sentence on there that said, I've got a condition, but it doesn't affect my ability to do this role. And when I think back, I think, why did I put that on there? One, I was very naive. Mm. I didn't realise there was so much stigma against employing disabled people. I wasn't prepared for that. Secondly, I have a very visible condition. I'm three foot ten in height. Mm-hmm. I, I know the shock that people have perhaps when they first initially meet me. Mm-hmm. And people can feel a bit awkward. So I was actually doing it to help my prospective employer feel less awkward, but that went against me. I just, first of all, I just think you're so inspiring. I'm actually lost for words. I can't (laughs) believe how driven, how motivated, how focused you were from such a young age. Because I think of myself. Do you see how I've had to be? Yeah. Because what was the alternative otherwise? And you know that experience of not being able to get a job? It left me feeling the most hopeless I've ever felt ever in my life. It's hard living with my condition. It's hard learning how to walk again seven times and knowing it's probably not going to be the last time I'm going to have to do this. But it's hard. It's hard being judged on your ability when you can't change that. It's hard knowing that I will never get certain opportunities or people won't ever consider me for things just because they have a bias towards some of my characteristics that make me who I am, that I did had no control over choosing, but sadly are what gonna define my life opportunities. And it's why I'm doing the work that I do. Honestly, I really am lost for words. I feel that your maturity at such a young age as well, you know, I, I think- grow up so young. So young. Do you know at 16 I was asked, oh, do you, you're gonna have kids one day, do you want kids? Like. I was so infantilized as a young woman. I wasn't ready to be asked those questions. 
and that's why you know I'm a massive advocate of any approach to inclusion it has to be intersectional if medical professionals really understood the discourse of disability in South Asian communities they'd know perhaps how to have that conversation differently I was just like, oh my god, they're asking me this in front of my mum. This is really awkward. Even though I love my mum, we're like close. Yes. Like we have a <laughs> mine and my mum's relationship is one of like best friends. Yeah. Not really of mother yeah, and daughter. Same, same. Um and even even though we have that relationship, I wasn't ready to have that conversation in front of her at that time. Who would be? Yeah. Do you know what it I mean? It blew me away. It's crazy. Like, Who wow, would think like they could the ask first that? person to ask me that? Because again, no one's spoken to me about marriage. No one's really spoken to me about having kids. And I must be the only South Asian woman to not be hassled to get married. And on one hand, I'm so glad. But then on the, on the other hand, I'm like, why, why are you still not? othering me? Yes. Why do you think I don't have the same needs and desires as everybody else? Because I do. Well, I have loads of aunties that will, will um, love to ask that question. <laughs> so um, I'll make sure that they call you and let you know. <laughs> and if not, Shani, I'll go against all the grain that I've said. I'll go against all my videos and I'll call you every day and ask oh. you, okay? <laughs> but it's um, it's crazy to think that, mm. right? That you're treated so differently by other people. I feel like your mum has really made you so strong. And I love the way that she has just... I listened to him on one of your other podcasts, yeah. you know, you still get whooped. She'll still be like, you need to do the dishes. <laughs> you need to, you, you, it doesn't matter about anything. You need to get it done. And Do you think they care I'm on least? Um, to be honest, right, <laughs> people only started to rate me within my own family when I got on EastEnders. And I think it was like the, the oh most... Oh my God, I want to watch the episode. Yeah. When were you on it? Um, it was last year. Okay. I am a massive EastEnders fan. I was when I was younger. Then I failed my GCSE, so I was really? banned from watching it. Really? Mm. But it's okay. I mean, well, I'm still allowed to watch okay. it now. Okay. My parents watch it strictly. Eight o'clock on a Monday. Right. Yeah, seven thirty on the other days. No, I don't it's know. on now. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> the change the scheduling. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I'm a massive EastEnders fan, and um, I'm not an actress, but I had this opportunity. I went for it. I got the audition out, and I didn't think I'd get the role. Um, it's just a, a, a very small part with yeah. lines, though. And okay. It's part of a really big storyline. I'm not joking. You know, I've said I've done some really cool stuff. Yeah. I've spoken at the UN. I've spoken with Michelle Obama. No one rated that. When I was in EastEnders, <laughs> people rated. But I, in a way, I like that my family and my friends keep me grounded. Yeah. Especially my niece and nephew. They're like, Mossy. What do you do? Yeah. yeah. Mossy, what do you do? Yeah. Mossy, like, are you coming? I need you to, I need you to be here for this. And yeah. again, like you said earlier, you've got lots of nieces and nephews. Like, they're my kids too. Yeah, right. They're begging, especially my niece. She's like, "When are you gonna adopt me, Mossy?" Um, so that, and I'm, I'm, I'm really comfortable with the fact that I haven't had kids. And actually, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I could look after kids. I can just about look after myself. Like, don't get me wrong. I love kids. I've worked with kids. Yes. I've been a nurse with nurse. Kids love me. Yes. I think it's because of we're the same height. Yeah. But I can like feed them and buy things and yeah. drive and like yeah. no one else their height. Can yeah. Um, so. But I'm really grateful that my sister just gave me the opportunity to be a second mom to them. She just like dropped them off at my house and leave so them for the nice. week. I, I loved it. So I don't feel like I've missed out. Yeah. I got I got 
to have that really hands-on experience. And what is the best experience when yeah. I have when you have nieces and nephews? Because yeah. you get them for their great times, then they get cranky, and then my cousins take them away, which is lovely. Yeah. And then we play with them when they're kids, and then yeah. when they turn into annoying teenagers like I was, yeah. and you have to go through schooling and parenting and puberty and all that rubbish. I won't need to do yeah. it. But I mean, I, I would like to have kids. I think you know the way I speak sometimes on the podcast and give a different perspective. People yeah. think I'm anti-marriage and anti-kids, which I'm no. absolutely not. No. I'm just not ready for it right now, and that's okay. And, you know? and you know, like, people enter marriages thinking, you know, I'm going to have a great day, I'm going to have a nice dress, yes. it's going to be a big party. And you know what I say to my friends and family? It's the biggest legal and financial commitment you are ever going to make. Nothing. I'm the one that brings it down to reality. But I just don't think people think about it like this. They do Especially not. Especially in our community. And let's not forget the cost of an average wedding in the South Asian community is literally like a hundred thousand pounds. Literally did a podcast on that about right? how ridiculous yeah. it is. So yeah. I always bring that element to it. It's not something that should be entered into lightly. Marriage is something that if you truly want to get married to that person, yeah. only then you should do it. Because and I think this is my point about when I speak about not rushing, when I speak about not think when I speak about thinking about it, when I speak about thinking about your future with that person, people think I'm anti marriage, mm -hmm. and I'm absolutely not. I believe in marriage 100% yeah. if it is right for you. Yeah, for me, I would like to get married and have kids, but I do not have to do all these things by a particular deadline. Yeah. I'm gonna turn 30 next year. If I'm not married, yeah. I am still okay. Yeah, everything is okay. Yeah, my whole world is not gonna come crashing down like everyone tells me. If I don't have <laughs> kids in the next three years, I will be okay. Yeah. Everything will work out in its time and its place. And I'm a big believer in that. I think, you know, so many of us rush to fit these timelines, Absolutely. go to school, go to university, go to uh, find a boyfriend, get, get engaged, get mm. married, have kids. And then what, what's the timeline? You die? Like what is the timeline after mm. that? And I just feel that like these timelines are so strict and rigid because after you have kids, then what is the next thing? You have grandkids? Okay, what's the next thing? Mm. There's so much in life that happens in between. But in between those things, you don't genuinely have kids, have grandkids, and then you pass away, yeah, yeah. right? There's so much beautiful like life mm. that happens in between those mm. timelines, and you don't have to do it in that order. Yeah, you could literally go to school, not get a job, yeah, get married, have kids, not have kids. Some people don't want to have children, yeah. yeah, and we need to stop this pressure of what's wrong. Yeah. Oh no. Or, or when someone's got married, the next thing they'll be asked is, "Oh, when are you having kids?" And you know, I've, I've spoken very publicly about my feeling towards me having kids you know yeah. I've got a rare condition mm -hmm. that's something to consider because there's a high probability I'd pass that on um I also have to think about the physical impact of birth like I was just, I'm just not doing it <laughs> but but what always what always sort of comes out of the blue for me is when people think I'm really at peace with the decision or that it was easy for me to make so even friends would be like, I know you don't want to have kids, but, uh, and I'm just like, whoa. Yeah. I'm just like, well, it's not that I don't. Mm. I love kids and, you know, perhaps if I was in a relationship or, you know, something different, I'd, I'd so be up for adoption if that other person really wanted kids. Right. But for me, that's not a priority. For mm. me, I need to be able to look after myself first and foremost. Yeah. My mobility is the best it's going to be every day it's only deteriorating I know that I 
will be a lot less mobile when I'm older. Mm. I really want to be looking after somebody else and all that. No. Mm. But when other people speak about it so flippantly, as if I'm like, as if I've reached that decision so easily and so emotionlessly, it, it's not. It, it's, it's been a journey. It's been a lot that I've had to process along the way as well. So I just want to say, like, whether for whatever reason you're talking to anybody else about kids or marriage just be mindful of of how how we're talking about these things and and how we're coming across it's so true you know i i said that in my video as well around the hardest thing i find is mm. you know if you're in a relationship and you're not married mm. people always think there's something wrong yeah people always ask me well what's wrong and the hardest thing is when people say you know men know within three months you know, women no, always have a feeling. When I met this person, <laughs> I knew instantly. And I'm like, good for you. Yeah. I just don't allow those comments yeah. to bother me anymore. I've become so immune to them. And I think this amazing community that I have here where I share this all the time really strengthens me to not allow any of those comments to bother me. And mm. people message me all the time, you know, why does it not bother you? And I just think, you know, someone coming to me and saying, you know, my so I met my husband and I knew straight away. And I'm just like, that's great for you. Yeah. Honestly, amazing. So happy that you're yeah. so happily yeah. married that you're literally having so much in interest <laughs> in my life right now. Clearly, you know, if you're so happy, talk to your yeah. husband. Why are you talking yeah. to me? Yeah. I mean, that's obviously not true. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just I just feel that people who ask me so many times, well, something must be wrong. Mm. Nothing is wrong. It's my choice. If like how you yeah. said, you know, it's you don't know what that person is going through. Mm. And auntie, if there's something wrong in my relationship and I see you once a year, mm. do you really think I'm gonna tell you the reason I'm not getting married is because this is wrong, no, this no. is wrong, this is wrong? But why Why do people feel that they have a right to know people's most private, personal, intimate things? Like, I don't know if this will surprise you, but people have asked me questions like, like random strangers on the street mm -hmm. have asked me, what's your life expectancy? Can you have sex? Can you have kids? I'm like, you didn't even start with hello. Who are you and why are you asking me this? Oh how is, my God. How is any of that affecting you in your life? I, I, yeah. I'm shocked. When you were saying, why do people feel like they can ask yeah. you so many deep questions? I was like, gosh, this is literally my role as a podcaster, isn't yeah. it? To like dive deep. But no, not, not questions no, like no, that. No, no, no. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But, but what I don't understand is why, does, why do people feel that they have a free pass to ask one another those questions? It's ridiculous. I wouldn't ask my friends those questions. Neither would I. Who asked somebody that? Exactly. Gosh, get these people in front of me. I'll beat them up for you. I mean, I'm not very, I'm so weak anyway. My grandma beat me in an arm wrestle. Can you believe it? She's like 84. She thrashed me in an arm wrestle. But, you know, I think there's so much that you're doing in the community. There's so much you're doing on TV. There's so much you're doing on radio. Mm. You're everywhere. How did you get into the media space? I never, I never planned any of this. Uh, it's all happened really organically. I... Um, became a nurse and nurse, loved it, but decided I didn't want to do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I went to uni and did a degree in event management because I really struggled to get a part-time job. I thought, how the hell am I ever going to get a proper job and have a career and be able to live independently and move out and travel and do all the things I want to do and, and live life on my terms? Mm -hmm. I know how fragile life is because that was the first 16 years of my life. And I made a promise to myself that I, I want to live without regret. 
and I don't want to let fear and just my own self-limiting beliefs stop me from living. And that's, I think, why I've had the courage to do the things I'm doing, because I'm not afraid to fail. If I fail at something, I'll have learned a lesson out of something. Mm -hmm. But you're never going to grow being comfortable. Never. And personally, like, I love being outside my comfort zone. Not at the time, but after. Mm -hmm. Because I've changed as a person. I'm ready to do bigger and better things. So I decided I had to go to uni to have a degree to fall back on. Because how else would people employ me? If people aren't employing me... Um, you know, for a job I needed no qualifications for. Right. You know, I thought, I can't give anyone a reason to not hire me. So I left uni, not only with a degree, but three years of free work experience because I thought I have to be better than everybody out there. I have to be better than everybody graduating that year. And I wouldn't have had that mindset if I didn't have had all, if I didn't face all of those challenges. And then I, I actually I was one of the first people in my graduating class to get a job as an event manager right. for a Royal Institute. And I spent 10 years in event management. Some of my clients included Anthony Joshua, Tyson Fury, Floyd Mayer there. Um, but that was all based on my very good friend. And he's like a brother to me, Andy. Andy Sahota giving me an opportunity in, in events. Um, everyone around him told him not to. They sort of said... What's she going to be able to do? But actually, like, we've raised over £400,000 for charity. We've put on world-class events in our hometown of Birmingham. Um, So, yeah, and we're actually now creating an internship for disabled people to get into event management. Amazing. It's it's become full circle. We haven't launched it. We're launching in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Um, But, so you heard it here first. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then as an event manager, I was doing all of my disability advocacy and um, activism on the side. So I'd I'd have a full-time job. Mm -hmm. I'd then be doing all my freelance events with Andy. And then I'd be doing all my activism on the side and trying to be a 20-something-year-old and travel. So it was becoming a lot. And I really wanted to get into this space because I realised there was no diversity in the representation of disabled people. Right. And I have to put this on record. There is so much white fragility in the disability community. And it's why I wanted to get involved and part of it and represent. Right. Because what I realised was, growing up, I'd never seen any disabled people on screen. And then when I did, it was all of my white disabled counterparts, which is brilliant. Yeah. I'm not throwing shade on them or, or hating them. But census data tells us there are more disabled people from Asian and and black communities. So why haven't I seen those on my screen? And I'm 35 years old and I've still only seen four disabled people of color on my screen. That doesn't include me. You're the first one I've seen. And I thought I've experienced all these barriers. I've experienced all this negativity. I, I, I've grown up without that representation and I want to be part of the change. But then I think people think all the doors were opened and everyone yeah. was inviting me to their table. Yeah. That was not the case at all. People back then had no concept of inclusion, had no real concept of diversity. Like now it's a booming industry. Mm. Back then everyone thought it was really fluffy. 
a, a good CSR thing. And actually, some people probably still do think that. Yep. But now it's a you know it's a it's it's a very um, in demand industry. There are people are hiring you know inclusion directors and consultants yes. like nobody's business, and that's great to see. However, people are forgetting that inclusion is everybody's responsibility. Mm. I see a lot of these roles. Loads of people approach me to to take them, but actually, I know the change that I want to achieve, I can do through business and through media. That's why I'm a tech entrepreneur. It's it's why I've become a broadcaster. But again, it was never the plan. It's just mm -hmm. all really happened organically. And um, I, I don't know if you've seen my LinkedIn advert. No, I haven't. So I was scrolling on LinkedIn one day. Yeah. And uh, I saw a job at Virgin Media and it was for a disability program manager. Right. And I thought, this is my dream job. Okay. It combined all of the skill set that you needed to be a project and event manager and someone who knew about disability rights and disability advocacy. So you know when you see jobs and you think that that job is for me. It's for me, yeah. But you don't ever get it. Yeah. Well, I got it. That's amazing. <laughs> I got it. And, you know, thinking back on this now, this was also a really pivotal moment in my life because it's what allowed me to move to London. Right. And London, sadly, is where all the opportunities are. So I'm you, very glad you're here. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love living in London, but it's very inaccessible. It's very hard. And also, it was it was massively lonely. Can all my family and good friends are in Birmingham. So I've had to carve out a, a new life for myself. Um, but I've been here five years and I'm loving it. Um, I just I need it to be more accessible because it's really difficult. Yeah, I can't believe you said yeah. that today on the train. You couldn't get the train here yeah. because it's so inaccessible. I'm shocked. Yeah, it's massive. But that's under the podcast for another time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I've, I love LinkedIn. It's always been a really accessible way for me to network because networking in a physical way is not always accessible. So it's a way and a platform I've always used uh, to show people what I'm doing it mm -hmm. has really helped to demonstrate my credibility and I can't tell you the amount of connections that I've made internationally Amazing. and the opportunities that have come from it a, a LinkedIn approached me and I was um one of one of the faces for their first ever TV advert in this country, wow. and it's had over seventeen million views. I was on That's the side amazing. of buses. <gasps> I was on the tube turnstile. No way! It was unreal. And then I was um, in a, in another partnership, and, and I was a LinkedIn change maker. So at the time, I was one of the. UK's most influential members. I, I don't know if I am yeah. anymore. But. I think you are, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, essentially, this job at Virgin Media really helped me to turn my passion into a career. That's amazing. And then from then, um, I've just added more things. And another thing I do a lot of is, is speaking. Yeah. And I hated public speaking when I was an event manager. You know, I used to have to introduce events, thank speakers. I hated it. Hated, really? hated, hated it, yeah. But I now love speaking because I'm, I know I'm speaking about something that only I can tell a story about. I'm speaking about my personal experience, but I'm also educating people and I'm challenging people's mindsets. And I see people's eyes widen when I explain that it's not my condition that disables me. It's the way in which society is designed. It's the bias that people have. It's, you know, and I speak about lots of different things, but you know, 
I didn't dream to be a speaker. People just approached me and said, oh, will you come and speak? Yes. And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, just go along with it. And I didn't realise how much money you could make from being a speaker. <laughs> yes, And can. then I realised, shit, I need to take this more seriously. <laughs> so I invested a lot of time and effort and money into that, learning how to be the best speaker that I can be, learning about what my niche is in this space. Mm. And, I, you know, I really want to get across to people I don't just wake up one day and think, oh, today I'm going to do this and then loose women knock on my door. It's yes. not that at all. Everything is much harder for me. And, and yet people think that, oh, you only got that opportunity because you're disabled. People have said this to me. And it's the most soul-destroying thing that people could, people could say to me because what that means is they've actually not... Appreciated. Not appreciated how hard. Not not understood how hard it is. Not only just me as a disabled person, but I'm South Asian. I'm also a woman. I don't like all add all of that into that complexity. But they're like, oh yeah, you tick all the boxes, don't you? So of course they're gonna want you. No, I have to fight so much harder to be there. I have to work so much harder. I feel like I have to overcompensate when I'm there. And I don't think that feeling will ever change because I know that the work I'm doing is more than my lifetime's worth of work, I know that the change I'm trying to advocate for perhaps will have an it, perhaps will have an impact in five hundred years' time. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the stats we hear now. What it's going to take to have gender equality? I dread to think about what the stats will be when it comes to disability equality or mm -hmm. equality on ethnicity. And I've got all of that going on, as many other people do. It's honestly absolutely crazy when I hear your story. And I just want to say you're probably, I would say genuinely the most inspiring person I've ever met. Aww. And this is probably one of my most eye-opening podcasts because you are an unbelievable speaker. Unbelievable, actually. I think you articulate yourself so well, but it's the way in which you articulate yourself. It's the journey you've told and it's so authentic. It's so real and you can really understand how not only has it been difficult, but it's been extremely difficult for you and your mindset to get through that is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, so many of us face adversities in life, but your mindset throughout this whole thing, your mum's mindset, your dad's mindset, yeah. to make sure you keep going, yeah. to make sure you fight for what you believe in, and to now be such an influential person, not only in this country, but globally, I, I, it's unbelievable. I think people think, you know, quite often with the things I'm doing or the amazing opportunities that have come my way, that they've all come really easily mm. or that I've curated them or planned them. I haven't. They're, they're just a beautiful bonus of the core work that I do, which is all about inclusion yes. and helping businesses and brands and, and our government to do better. Because yes. what all I've done really and simply I align my passions to my purpose. Yes. And that's what I've done. I, I, there's no magic formula. So often people say to me, how did you do this? Mm. How did you get on there? Mm. I, I can't, th there's no magic formula. And, and when I learned that about entrepreneurship, when I realized everybody else is making it up as they go along, it's what gave me the confidence to launch an app that helps disabled people save money mm. because disabled people face unavoidable extra costs Mm -hmm. living with a condition or an impairment mm -hmm. on average this adds up to 583 pounds a month more we are already in our own cost of living crisis mm -hmm. and then we've got another one 
but who's doing anything about it? So I thought, okay, I've got an idea. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I don't. I didn't even realise I was setting up a tech company at the time. Right. I can't even use a Mac. But I knew if I didn't try and do this, I'd always regret it. And I'm not doing this for me. Mm-hmm. If I was doing this to make money, I would have done something long ago. I made things. my money and been yeah. living in a hot country by now. Believe you me. Yeah. Because, you know, I really believe whatever I put my mind to, I know I will work hard enough to achieve what I already have. I've already mm. had to. This has been my only way of operating in life. So why wouldn't I continue to do that? So I'm not doing this for me. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this because I want to help 25% of the population that are disabled in this country and no one gives a fuck about basically. Not even the government. We yeah. can't wait for charities to do it either. Mm-hmm. I work with a lot of organisations and disabled people's organisations and charities and I love them and I support them and I'm not bashing them. Yeah. But for a population of its size, 25%. It's huge. We're very fragmented. We don't have a unified voice. And financial stability is something that everybody needs. It's a human right. Money is non-negotiable. Yes. And you know what's really annoyed me in this whole narrative of cost of living crisis? Where are disabled people's voices? Where are the experts of living in deficit? Yes. Where are the experts of being twice as likely to be unemployed, having to apply for 60% more jobs, Did you know that for every £100 a non-disabled person has is only equivalent to £68 for a disabled person? Yet we have all these extra costs. That's all I'm trying to do is help to try and bring that equity to disabled people. So I've got some great businesses on board. Yeah. We're launching very soon. I've had so many setbacks. I lost Mm -hmm. all my investors when the pandemic hit. I was heartbroken and distraught. Um, but it's been a journey. I've had so many grey hair because of it. I even applied to go on The Apprentice. I got through to the final round. And they were kind of like, if you get the call, you're on. If you're not, you're not. Because I just wanted the money. Right. And it was the most horrible things I've ever done. And I rate anyone. Props to Harpscore who won it recently. Yeah, she's amazing. Hey, props to anyone that goes through the <laughs> process. But that, again, it put me outside my comfort zone massively. But it's only just made me a more determined person. You are so, so, so inspiring. I can't say it enough, really, honestly. And, you know, everything you just said around how you didn't ask to be a speaker, it's so funny. I've literally going through the same thing. Yeah. I think I've always been someone who's loved public speaking, though. I love it. Yeah. My, I think my purpose in, in life is to inspire people. And I just love that feeling of when I look at someone and they're like, you know, and they feel so inspired by you and they just feel that they're gonna make a change. And for me, since I've been younger, I'd always wanna read out little poems in assembly and I'd always wanna do a lot of public speaking wherever I could, Mm. but I never thought I'd make money from it. And from the podcast, I've been getting these opportunities from companies like McKinsey and TSB and AIG, which I just never thought in a million years that number one, they would ask me to come and speak. And that was one of the reasons why I thought, you know, let me leave my job and let me ask companies if I can Mm. go and speak there, right? Because why not? You know, if if people are recognizing there's a need for it, so let me try and do it. And I talk a lot around goal setting and cultural behaviors and organizations and employee engagement and retention. And something I'm really passionate about is strengths-based leadership. And it's Mm. all incorporated into that performance panel I did. But it's so funny when people ask me, you know, well, how are you getting this and this? And I'm like, Mm. 
None of this was planned. Right. The podcast was, I recorded two episodes. I thought I would do one season. Yeah. Didn't know where it was going. Yeah. No idea anything yeah. was going to come from it. And I have had so many opportunities come from it. And I think it's true because I'm just doing truly from my heart what I love and what my purpose is. Yeah. And I did a video today around how so many people are doing things for clout, right? I have never cared. Um, recently, my followers have gone up. Mm. And everyone's like, oh my God, you're killing it. And I'm like... No, I'm not. Yeah. Like, I really am not. Everything, my videos are becoming, are resonating with people and I'm getting hundreds of messages a day saying how I'm inspiring people. But you don't see that. So you're just seeing my followers going up, saying I'm killing it, which I, and I love the support and I love that messages are being shared and I love that it's reaching more people. Mm. But that number doesn't mean anything. Also, it just goes to show how much instant gratification pe people expect these days. Yeah. You know, You know what I'm doing and what's got me to where I am, this is years yes. and years and years worth of work. Yeah. And perhaps some people are only finding out about now. that now. Yeah. And the same with you. And yeah. this is the beginning of your journey. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. And I'm just so grateful that you came on and you have really inspired me so much. I can't tell you. Honestly, people always ask me what's your favorite episode. I have a new one. Is it this? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> but no, it really, it really, really is. And you know, we always end this podcast with the truth or dare. Mm. But yours is going to be a little bit of a different one, depending on what you choose. Okay. What would you like to choose? Truth. Good. I was so happy you said that because I didn't have a dare for you. I was thinking, <laughs> God, what am I going to say? I say different because normally I ask people a very deep question, but yeah. I think this podcast has been so deep yeah. and so emotional. And I want to know what your one of your most proudest moments was, apart from graduating. Okay. So what was the moment where you felt the proudest you've ever felt before? Recently, my... Mom, my niece, and my sister and sister-in-law came to London for a few days, and I organised it. I booked everything. I paid for it, and I was really proud that I could do that. It kind of felt like, look, Mom, I'm going to cry. I've come to London. I've come to work. Oh. Yeah, I've smashed it out the park, and I've been able to. Um, do nice things for them and because oh my god i'm not a crier at all um sorry i do do that no to people. <laughs> <laughs> no it, it's because i'm proud and you know it's just something nice that i was able to do but it it was as a result of a lot of hard work like moving here to london was one of the scariest things i've done and um uh, oh my god sorry you don't have to apologize and do you want to stop? No, no, no. Sure. Um, I don't know. I just felt really proud that I was able to do that and treat them and just, you know, give give my thanks to them and appreciate them. So, yeah, it's not like, you know, all these... It's And for me, it's not ever about that. It's not about the, the glitz and the glamour. That, that's a nice thing to have when it arises and it's a bonus. But, you know, I, I will never forget where I've come from and... All of the people that helped me and supported me and even, you know, when you messaged me, I didn't see your message until a lot longer after because I get so many lovely messages of support and um, of people reaching out to me and I, I, I see it all and I appreciate it all mm. and I just, yeah, I just want to share that. I might not ever be able to get back to people, but it really does mean the world to me. So that's my current uh, proud moment. I am so grateful you saw my message and I'm 
incredibly grateful you took the time out to come here today and be so open and share so much emotion and you are going to inspire so many people you. and you are I can't even put into words how amazing I think <laughs> oh, you are and you. I'm so grateful so thank, thank you. you thank you hey everyone and thank you so much for listening to this podcast wherever you're listening or watching if you could press the like follow and subscribe button it would mean the world to me